you realise something? Hello? Hello, hello, hello. Hello. Do you realise something? No, I don't. People are going to be listening to us talking about their story for two weeks. People, people have demanded that, though, haven't they? I know. I mean... I think, um, wasn't it Conrad who, who said I should do this episode first? And uh, is it Andy Parkinson? Andy Parkinson is, is mad on this one as well. Yeah. I think... Um, I think Conrad was quite specific. Did you hear me talk for? Yeah, I think so too. <laughs> Seven episodes. But... I don't think he cares what you're talking about. He could be reading your shopping list or something. <laughs> it's the accent, Fraser. Honestly, I'll, I'll do a special shopping list podcast. <laughs> <laughs> Two pounds of spuds. <laughs> I know. No one's desperate to hear my voice reading out a shopping he list. He bessies your shepherdens. <laughs> <laughs> Stop. <laughs> Your missus is just next door, honestly. <laughs> okay. All right. Welcome back to A Hamster with a Blunt Pen Knife, the Doctor Who Ping! commentary podcast <laughs> that considers it so its moral duty to talk about the ambassadors of death. I'm Fraser, and I'm joined by the host of Hamster, which is the Marvellous, incomparable, incorrigible Joe Ford. Say hello, Joe. Incorrigible? What the hell does that mean? It means that you are incorrigible. <laughs> I am a um, very slick henchman uh, who is scientifically uh, very adept. I can murder anyone in a heartbeat. Stop rockets going up in the air. Yeah. For... for <laughs> For your henchman needs, just no, call Joe Ford. You know the difference between your M3 and standard variant? Just about. Yeah. yeah. I think you just like rub it out and write standard variant. You know which which tube to put the uh, the helium gas into? <laughs> You're going to ask me what? I'm not even going to answer that question. You filth bag. I mean, you've changed, you know, since you first started doing these things. <laughs> Everyone's gone the way of the hamster. I think it's just your incorrigible ability to see smut where no smut exists. It's true, as you are, you know, when I'm talking with you. Uh, we are here to talk about episode seven, the climactic instalment yes. of the Ambassadors of Death. Yeah. Uh, we have some uh, interrogation points from hamster contributors. Oh. If, if you are willing to uh, have a go. Yes, let's go with those. A marvellous question here from Jim Allenby, who asks, given that how many of us first saw ambassadors in black and white, do you think it works better in black and white or colour? I love the colourisation, but the black and white gives it a fantastic atmosphere. Oh, that's interesting because I did see this first in black and white on UK Gold. Me too. Um, when it was repeated on there and... I mean, I do, I do like the colour. The colour brings um, brings more to it, but it is very sepia tone be, just because of the way that it's, you know, been brought back. I don't think the colour, you know, adds as much as it might do and say if we only had, like, a black and white clause of Axos, um, that sort of thing. I hear, yeah. you know, that if you turn down the Colin Baker era to black and white, it automatically becomes more moody. Yeah. Mm. Well, 
what was it, the, the rumor that the Happiness Patrol was scheduled to be filmed in black and white? I think it's a myth. But it's an interesting idea, though, isn't it? Interesting idea that it was supposed to be very sort of um, film noir on yeah. sort of like crazy angles in black and white and whatnot. But I think, I think what we'll see the best of this story in terms of colorization is um, if and when it gets a good scrub up for a Blu-ray. I think if you know those geniuses the, the blu-ray central can can really you know go to work with this like they have done with like season eight and really you know smooth out the rougher edges and <laughs> whatnot willow a contributor there yeah this is willow willow I, and lily i think the, little, um, i think so my... i think lily disagrees there i think lily prefers the black and white <laughs> To I be honest with you, I all the ones that have been recolorized, I tend to prefer the black and white. There, it's uh, certainly Mind of Evil. I think looks a lot sharper, and the picture quality is a lot better in black and white. But uh, this one, I don't know. Yeah, I think um, again going back to, I know we're talking a lot about Invasion of the Dinosaurs in this commentary. Um, that episode one, where the colorization isn't quite as good as the other ones, really adds atmosphere to that, though. You know, that, think, that think, sort of, it, it's sort of like a, a burnt orange effect, isn't it, around sort of the scenes in London, which really adds a lot of depth to that whole sense of abandoned city, which I really like. Yeah, yeah there's just a certain grittiness about black and white that I really like. Yeah, yeah. There's, it kind of comes with a, an inbuilt atmosphere of its own, you know. I suppose the most important question about this episode is does it end the story satisfactorily it's a lot you know it's not a slog but it's a long yeah. story and a lot's happened and it's very complicated it is there is um there's a quite unusual ending um which i think i'll leave until the end to discuss um, i think this is where you get the classic new series divide because i think a new series fan a primarily new, would say this is anticlimactic Whereas I think a classic series fan would say, actually, this is very different and very thoughtful. Okay, let's get to the end, the end of the end. Okay. We'll have a good, a good chat about the end of the end, because there is, there is meat on those bones. So... There's definitely meat we... on my bones. Let's go, shall we? Stop it. <laughs> I'm talking about fat. <laughs> right, um, do you want to count us in? Five, four... Three, two, one. Let's go. So mm. I've got a question for you straight off the bat then. I'm ready. Where do you rate this story? In what, season seven? Of... No, this story, Ambassadors of Death. How, where do you rate it in all of Doctor Who? Uh, when I did it for my blog, yeah, I thought to myself, oh, I don't know what I'm going to say about this thing. And I ended up writing, I think it's three and a half thousand words. And I gave it an eight out of 10. So I said, it's a little bit muddy. It's a little bit long and a little bit padded. But everything that's here is is very well done. And I, I, I wouldn't disagree with that, you know. Um, so I'll say it's well above average, but not... Uh, like a standout classic yeah where would you rate it within the stories of season seven probably 
seconds now i think i think it would be i'll literally uh take um season seven in reverse order inferno ambassadors silurians oh you put spearhead i would yeah i would interesting uh where would you write season seven in terms of the pert where you were uh oh god it's such an anomaly um <laughs> in a unique bubble all of its own no i'd say seven is probably it's probably the most effective season it's the most successful season but is in no way my favorite season and where would you rate the pertwee era in all of doctor who i think the pertwee era is my go-to comfort doctor who but i also think there's a lot more to it than just comfort who i love the john pertwee era excellent i've interviewed you oh thank you very much a gary russell oh. i no no i think i think with the john pertwee era if i'm going to go to my shelf yeah. nine times out of ten i'll pull out a pertwee i think yeah it's really funny because i really at this moment in time i know growing up we've discussed you know pertwee was you know a big influence on my love of doctor who and you know the stories a lot of the first stories I watched with Pertwee once, so we were squeaking our time. Um, <laughs> and I really struggle with, with East Doctor at times now, at this moment in time. But again, you know, coming back and, like you say, picking stories off a shelf, these stories are so good in this era. A lot of them are so good, even the ones that aren't as good, like the Time Monster that we've discussed, have still got a lot of merit and a lot of things to to talk about, haven't they? Um, I think this is probably the most reliable era of doctor who and i can see why during the jean pertwee era it built that audience yeah you know there there was uh eight odd million people watching it took a little dip at the end of seven yeah come i think uh, invasion of the dinosaurs one of the episodes got 11 million like it was growing and growing like you could rely to turn on the tv and be entertained and thrilled and excited i think the 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 real um best thing about this year is, is Barry Letts and Terence Dix, who are absolutely simpatico. And comp- so different. Yeah. You know, yeah. and they want, they almost want different things from the show. But they've got such a clear vision of what they want to do, and they work so well together, yeah. um, which, you know, we possibly haven't had throughout, you know, the previous sort of seven years or whatever at this point. A team that is so, you know, engaged with each other and so connected. We see it again with, with Hinchcliffe and Holmes, and we see... Um, you know, Graham Williams, it's it's not until like GNT and Seward that, that kind of disappears. Well, interestingly, the other story I am recording later on today is the twin dilemma. And Ooh. I think that is the perfect example of when your script editor and your producer are not in Simpatico. Yes. That's what goes wrong, you know? <laughs> okay, I've got a question for you. Mm. Um, in the first couple of episodes, we had a lady in space control who was you know, helping um, Ralph Cornish, you know, talk down. She vanished, didn't she? She had a couple of weeks holiday. Yeah. And then we've got uh, her, another female character in Space Control now who's helped get the Doctor into space and get him down again. They're two different characters. Wow. I know. <laughs> I think we're supposed to not have noticed it's a different what was, woman. What was Forget wrong it. with the first one that they thought and we need to replace her with? The he asked, someone asked Michael Ferguson that. Yeah. And I think he does have a reason as to why the woman, I think she's got another job or something like that. Uh-huh. They make this fabulous joke that perhaps she could have popped along at the end and gone, well, what's been happening in the last couple of weeks? <laughs> <laughs> Anything been going on that I should know about? We had these aliens come visit, you know, new world mm. catastrophe. 
Do you know, I've got a question for you, and it's about yeah. the ambassadors, right? Mm -hmm. Because they've been going about the place killing people, all right? Mm -hmm. Well, they've come down and they've got unusual language and there's communication errors and things like this. But what the fuck do they think they're about? Like, what do they think they're doing? Do they think they're going around saying hello to people? No, no, they think that they know for exactly what's happening because the doctor does build a machine where they can talk to them at the end and they know fine well um, that they are going and, and killing people, but they are being held over barrel by Regan because he has got the radiation that they need to survive. So ah, his, his device is basically oh, okay. saying... Do this. The, the floppy wrist ambassador on the Venetian blind screen. He um, he said, is... "You've been using our ambassadors." Yeah. You know. But yeah. so, but they are benevolent species. Yeah, they've they come, are. They've come they're... just to you know say hello. I mean, these these three three aliens are essentially just that ambassadors. They have come to make contact with Earth and set up good relations and whatnot. But because they've been hijacked by Carrington to use for his xenophobic means and because he's given a Regan who wants to use them for everything else they are now being forced into doing so there's, there's the real villain here is is not the aliens it's the it's the humans it's a very sort of chibnally it's the xenophobia do. isn't it it's the racism yeah but um this is the second time this season then where you know a relationship with another species was entirely possible yeah so what yeah, occurs yeah. at the end of this then because he says, so, you know, we're going to get the ambassadors back into space. So they just pop off and say, well, presumably, we have nothing to do with you, all right? You troublesome lot on Earth. I would imagine so. I mean, it's, yeah, we sent three ambassadors. You, you didn't give them any Ferrero Rocher whatsoever. You just right. used them to zap people. So, toodaloo, planet Earth, leave well alone, mostly harmless. Off you go. Oh, wait, Ooh, I really that. love this. I really love how Carrington is going to use the ambassadors to scare everybody yes. via the media. Yeah. Because that's that's very, very modern day as well. Yeah. Yeah. Um, you're gonna, I'm going to remove the helmet. You can't even touch them without... You can't leave a single finger on them without being zapped to death. How are you going to take the helmet off? It's Doesn't... Just... Doesn't Carrington hold a gun on Michael Wish's reporter and say, no, you will, you will Ooh, report this? I'm not entirely sure. Yeah, I think he does. I think, I think he is desperate for everybody to see what he sees. Yeah. Isn't it? Which is... This is it. This is it. And as we'll get the, the ambassadors doing a bit more... Zapping. Zapping, yep. Yeah. Those, those clouded uh, space helmets are so effective. Yeah. Well, was um, is it Margaret Hayhoe who says in the making of that, you know, it was a unintentional design flaw that the the helmets that the actors were wearing steamed up while they were wearing them, but that just added to the whole. Yeah, that's brilliant. Like I say, when when you can actually see the faces, when you can see they just got a, a face with black cloth over it, it's not nearly as effective as this sort of like radiation blistered, um. What, what's great about this episode now is we're kind of on a countdown to this broadcast. Yes. Which has got to be stopped. And suddenly um, there's a wonderful sequence in a minute where it's done handheld camera work where the brigadier yeah. is marched out of the base. And he, he effectively, it, he takes on all the guards, doesn't he? He's amazing. Yeah. But it's like, yeah. you know, ha we need to stop Carrington. We need to stop this happening because this is going to spread like fear yeah and this ain't gonna end well for the ambassadors so oh, it's not gonna end well for anyone but we've got but we're trying to save the monsters when does doctor who do that it's, it's so new series and 
in a lot of ways, isn't it? Um, and you've got Carrington just becoming more and more unhinged. You know, um, Cornish has already called him out as being mad and we're now seeing him really start to unravel and he's going to start pulling guns on people. He's going to start arresting the Brigadier. You know, we already know now that he is, you know, the chief. You know, he, he's, he's the organ grinder, as it were, to, to Regan's monkey. So... Well, that does actually lead me to another question that somebody asked. Yes. And that is uh, from the marvellous Ben Jolly. He asks, um, given you know, the despicable things that he does in this story, do you think Reagan deserved to live to fight another day? Absolutely, yes. Because, you know, this is Doctor Who. It's not Blake Seven or... But this no, wouldn't happen seven. in other eras. No. Like the, the henchman, like, Scorby gets killed, doesn't he? Yeah. Um, Stotts gets killed. Yeah, absolutely. But, you know, are those good things? Is that, you know, how it should be? That, yeah, you were wrong, and so you don't end, you don't make it to the end credits of, of the final episode? I don't think so. I, I like the fact that, you know, Carrington gets away. but well, he doesn't get away, but he is left alive. I, I like that, um, you know, Regan is captured. And, you know, you, they're going to get justice somewhere else, you know. Do you think it's another element of naturalism for this season yeah. to actually say, do you know what? Like, not everybody gets their justice. Yeah. Not not all bad people die. Yeah. Sometimes, you know, bad people are bad people and they get you away know, with it. Again, you know, sometimes the good people live. Some people, you know, bad people live and good people die in a story, you know. That's and very I'm, new I'm, series I'm, as well. New series yeah. has a lot of that. Yeah, I'm, I'm more than happy with that, I think. You know, one of the things I, I dislike about later stories, especially the, you know, my hero Eric Sayward's time, is that everyone dies at the casual end. Casual murder of yeah. everybody. Well, that's, how he, like, that's how he ends a plot, isn't it? It's like, yeah. well, we won't, we won't have to give anyone a satisfying ending. We're just going to yeah. brutally dispatch them all. We'll just let the TARDIS crew walk away, or maybe he's one or two. Others. And then you can't just turn around and go, well, there should have been another way. Well, yeah, there should have been. You should have fucking written it. Exactly. You know? <laughs> Jesus I, I think you can use that ending um a few times you know th there is justification like using that ending i just think yeah you know, but they did it they did it best in silurians yeah let's let's make it with other aliens as well rather than just just the silurians you know every silurian story now is sort of like oh well this is your planet as well we should share and oh i'm really sorry that we've got to kill you is it why why can't we have that with i don't know the zygons in terror of the zygons why can't we have that with the terraleptals in the visitation why does it always why is it just Cyrurians that we have this this attitude and I think it's something that Russell T. Davis did very well in um you know series one with with Chris Eccleston where we have the unquiet dead where he's more than happy to let the girls come through and yeah oh, I love that I love it I like it but then I really like it when the doctor yeah. behaves in a very alien way you know or, or it, with a morality that's different exactly to our own. exactly you know that's that's one of the things that works very well there oh Mitten Raven Man's back we've missed um Jeffrey Beavers Oh, no, I was about to say, Caroline yeah. John's husband, husband, future master. Yes. Beavers, looking very handsome, I might say. Yes. Oh, look at that shot of Carrington just stood at the top there. Can I just say, Fraser, I don't know if you've listened to the Big Finish box set Masterful, right? But no, Jeffrey Beavers gets a subplot in that where his um, crispy master, um, he gets a love story and he's absolutely amazing in it. It's some of the best master I've ever heard. He's he's very, very good. Jeffrey yes. Beavers. Yeah. Rather, well, you've got Jeffrey Beavers in this. You've got Paul Darrow playing a soldier in Silurians. Yeah. 
pre Tekka stroke Avon. So that is a question for you then. Obviously, you know, we've got Michael Wish in here who goes on to play various other parts as well as Davros. We've got several shops who has various parts of Doctor Who. You know, this is a theme throughout the 60s and the 70s where you have the same, you know, Ralph Cornish was in The Dominators, Claxon mm-hmm. on it. Um, the, the classic series wasn't afraid to use actors again and again and again and say, you know, yeah, just because you were in one story doesn't mean you can't be in the... Are you going to ask one? me why the new series doesn't do the yeah. same thing? Yeah. Um... <sighs> Oh my god, am I that no. predictable? Yeah, possibly. Um, is is the new series more scrutinised? I think I think perhaps the show as as a whole is more accessible now, and it's scrutinised in a lot more detail. I don't know. There have been a couple, haven't there, in the new series? There have. I mean, obviously, Karen Gillan was in Fires of Pompeii before. Prime Regiment. Yeah, was you know Peter Capaldi. Mm. You know, I mean, and the show then has to do a few narrative loops to say. Brigadier has escaped and fantastic to say why this, this is just like the bloody Sweeney. This look at this, yeah, darkened underground things. He's getting away in a car, they're blasting away at him. All you need is like that, like wow, wow, music playing. And uh, well, you've got Dudley Simpson doing his finest work here, so it could be Jason King or something like that, you know, starring yeah. Nicholas Courtney. I mean, this is good because the Brigadiers drove out just as they get the phone call. Um, to say don't let the brigadier out so it's not just <laughs> you, it's not just unit that shit of security it's the general army as well no one can keep anyone in or out of this base that's terrorist dukes keeping an eye on the script so it's got to make sense come on <laughs> how's he get out rest. how's he get in aye, aye, aye. um sorry i needed to hit you with a random question that has just emerged and that is um which several shaps are you today <laughs> oh i would say i am Ooh, civil shaps from Planet of Spiders. I think I'm always the Archimandrite, if I'm honest. <laughs> Campus Christmas. That's, oh my God, <laughs> here we go, here's the music. This sequence is amazing, although it's I think fantastic. this is the one moment where you really see the brigadier uncomfortable at firing a gun. He's like, <laughs> uh, he's like wincing with every fire. Every, you know? every time, every time you see Nick Courtney pull a gun, he blinks and he flinches, and it's it's really fantastic. But again, I just love it because it's the brigadier, you know, getting it into the thick of things. It's it's what's taken away from him when Yates and Yates is brought in in season eight is that he doesn't get to actually. You know, prove his metal. It, more than again, more than goes to show that he could very well have been a corporal at one point in his career. I um, I remember in the behind the sofa from season eight, Janet Fielding's watching that, and obviously the you know there's a lot of violence and a lot yeah. of action and a lot of death as well. Like Mind of Evil is a bloody massacre, um, and she says, "I know, I really object to all the violence in this," <clears throat> and um, the Doctor having like an, an army at his command yeah. so to speak is that a problem no no i think i think it works well you know have a unit in here as you know the doctor's tool as it were you know what i mean it's like the doctor uses you know he if it was just you know the doctor in a some sort of like nice little cottage down in cornwall or something you know and having to save the world at the same time that would be a bit of a stretch, but to have the Doctor in the thick of the action to say, well, the Doctor, 
is using UNIT to try and fix his TARDIS. UNIT are using the Doctor to save the world. It's a bit of a symbiotic relationship. I think that's absolutely fine. Um, and more importantly, he objects yeah. the violence half the time. Although, does. As, the, as the series goes on, I think he, he, he starts utilising it as well. Yeah. Yeah. Um, oh, look at this. I'm offering you an equal share, Doctor. <laughs> Come on. Oh, and... Reagan, Reagan will literally sell out anybody, wouldn't he, yeah. to, <laughs> to get out of this story. But again, it's just so... <laughs> this, I'll tell you what, Fraser, this is a really good last episode. Because I, I really, it feels like it's, it, like, time is running out. We yeah. have got, we have got to stop him, you know? And I feel like that throughout. Some last episodes, you go look at Hinchcliffe, they're a bit saggy, you know? Ah, uh, yeah, I think some... Pyramid of Mars is probably a good example where the plot kind of runs out a little bit, so they have to hand of fear. I love, I love the last episode of of Pyramids of Mars. Don't get us wrong, I love the whole Terry Nation feel of it, but it, it is... reminds me of City Excellence. Yeah, <laughs> I love, I love all that Crystal Mears stuff. But isn't it's this fantastic. great now that they they manage? You no, know, so like all of what we've seen is vital. Yeah, um, yeah. in communicating with the ambassadors because now they need them in order to bring Carrington down yeah and they don't they, obviously they don't use them to kill but they no, use no, them no. as a way in don't they because exactly. no exactly. one's going to get in their way because the time short it's going back to what you're saying was of like how this episode is suddenly like countdown centric it's it's yeah. what Terence Dixon and Matt Holt do so well is just kind of pad 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 right let's get on yeah do the end but it's not a sort of deus ending it feels very like you say we've worked up to this we've built the machine we've mm -hmm. um oh look at that shot man that's beautiful Honestly. isn't it that that could it's come from a film it? that shot of the absolutely and, oh look at that shot of that hat that is just stunning um sorry distracting myself there what was i saying yeah the, like, the, do you know what i don't i just don't think there's any part of this visually and you can't say that about many doctor who stories there's just no part of this that isn't firing, is it? No, there's absolutely not. There's just even the daft little things like the Doctor in the space capsule, you know, it's shot from above and he spins around before he gets out and, you know, shots a general countenance at the top of the stairs and the fact that, you know, the way that he shoots um, Ronald Allen just absolutely stock still in his chair when he's, you know, talking to people over the radio. That special effect there when they just touch the door and it blows out a few seconds later. Terrific. Oh, Bessie with that It feels, oh my God, look at this. Like the, the entrance to the base. It just feels like there's an enormous, look at that action sequence. Like it feels like the budget is massive for this. Mm. Oh, but it's God. it's it's one of the benefits of having these extra episodes, isn't it? Is that you can annotize the cast, you can make everything look really fantastic. Yeah, yeah. Like logistically, it was a smart creative move. Yeah. And it, it, even the set, I mean, obviously. Was it, was it someone in one of your companies that said that obviously they've moved from Lime Grove D here to BBC Centre and you can tell that it's such a bigger a studio. Bigger studio yeah. bigger oh, look at this, the close-ups as we, and then we go yeah. into the news broadcast again, very new series. Yeah. Using the news. I mean, you would not think that was the same man that plays Davros. Would you? No. That is no, 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 no. But then I, I, I think Michael Wisher commits to everyone. He gets a very thankless role in Planet of Evil that I watched this yeah. week, and he's still great in that. Look at this. It's so tense now that we are just watching this. Like, like, 
even though he's defeated here, I don't think uh, John Abenary's character is not apologetic. No, no. He's, he's like, I did it for a reason. Yeah. I was trying just, to make them see. It's it's that whole sort of like moral duty. I had a moral duty to to this. And, and you know, this, this is the sort of ending that I think Inferno lacks. This all feels like it coheres, whereas I always feel like Inferno kind of ends brilliantly on yeah. episode six. And in episode seven, it's just like a bit, a bit of a young fest, you know. Look at this though. Carrington is just so defeated and so deflated. He's surrounded by unit soldiers now. Look at the amount of people in that scene. But look look at the the respect that they're treating him with. You know, he's allowed to handle his pistol, put his hat back on. Yeah, he puts his hat on. And And his flag of stick. Stands to stands to attention. Yep. And then obviously he's he stops by the doctor, the one person he thinks is going to understand why he's done what he's done. I had to do what I did. It was my moral duty. You do understand that, don't you? And he just says, yes, Jen. But you know what? The Pertwee of later seasons is very black and white sometimes. It's like, you know, you remember with the controller in there, the Daleks? Who really runs this? You know, you're a quizzling, sir. (laughs) There's none of that here, is there? Well, when Pertwee says, when the doctor says that, when he says, I understand, does he, is he sort of agreeing with Carrington? Because that's that's a way that people read Possibly, that. Possibly, like, potentially. Well, he's made no secret of what he thinks of humanity in no. this season. It is dripping with subtext. The way that Pertwee delivers that line, he's just yeah. so gentle. Yes, I understand. He understands exactly that Carrington has lost the plot. That's what he's saying. He's not saying I understand and I agree with you. He's saying I understand that you are insane. And as, it, as it, it, you know, it belies the fact when I hear someone like Terrence Dix say that John Poe wasn't much of an actor, but boy, he had presence. No, he yeah. was a terrific actor. He, he has loaded that one line with so much meaning that other people, and you know, that's if that's where you want to read it, that the doctor is, you know, agreeing with Count and whatever, then that's fine. It's so unusual, isn't it? Where he's just like, he's shaking everyone's hand and saying, Right, I'm off. I'm going to leave yeah. you two guys to. But do you know what? You can absolutely feel Terrence Dix's hand in this scene because. Yeah. Look at that glass shot. That is terrific. That is brilliant. Um, so, hang on. Sorry, sorry. You can feel Terrence Six because he goes, right, he goes, right, what we need to do is we need to contact the ambassadors and let them know that their people are down here. He goes, yep. well, what about my three astronauts? Yep, we need to get those back as well. And there's like a tick list of things that still yep. need to be done. And that's Terrence Dix. He won't leave like any yeah. of those boxes unchecked. Yeah. Is it? well, are you not going to stop and help us? You've got this show. Doctor... Liz Shaw, who can help you deal with that. You don't need me. I'm off. Toodaloo. And, you know, a lot of people say that that is a very sudden ending. Um, Your dog certainly thinks so. Yeah. Calm down, Liddy. Well, nope, nope. Um, but w- w- what's left? What's left at that point? What What do we need after this point where, you know, Carradine's defeated, the Doctor has, you know, acknowledged that you know, it's like, I understand why you did what you did. I don't agree with it, but I understand. I don't agree with you. Your reason whatsoever. I understand why you've done it though, even though why you've done it is wrong. I am being, it's the polar opposite of what we talked about with um, Trist and Tom Baker just saying, go away. You know, that condemnation, it's actually, yes, I understand you. You are wrong, but I understand that you are wrong and I 
it's just lovely. It's, I think it's, it's really rare lovely. to have a villain with that much nuance yeah. as well. I think Doctor Who very, very rarely yeah. would think to give uh, its villain of the piece, and he is, yeah. uh, that's that kind of thought. But like you say, that we don't always get that nuance with the Doctor as well. We get a very black and white reaction to, to good and evil from, from the Doctor as well. So to have that sort of tacit sort of like, it's 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 very condescending. It's very, there, 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 there. You know, so we'll, we'll do all that and we'll, you know, the story's wrapped up, you know, like he says, right, it's done. Send them back in the space, get your astronauts back. You know, we don't, what, what other scene do we need after that? It, it then goes into the sort of, you have been watching yeah territory which, <laughs> which really really grates at me in, in in season eight of sort of galactic you you it's a funny line but it's it's there to be a funny line and it's a bit like oh well we don't need that here we we can just wrap up and the doctor can walk out and you know he's going to go back to fixing up the tardis and lish will clean up his mess and tidy everything away and come well, back with him joy of this format isn't it is that it can do a thoughtful ending and it can do a agonizing yeah. comedy ending and kind of going back to the question we were asked about you know would that be a nice ending for liz i think if if liz had said well actually doctor i'm not coming back to unit with you i'm going to stay at space center and do all this that and the other it would be a very sort of leela ending it would be very like actually well it's better than nothing though it is it? better than nothing oh yeah the, the fact that she doesn't get a proper send-off is one of the greatest tragedies of classic doctor who fraser I've got a question for you, and then we need to give our reasons as to what I mean. We've given plenty already, but let's yeah. summarise it. But yeah. my question is this, because clearly this is a story that you admire a lot. I think it's one of your favourites. Mm -hmm. So and I don't want the, it's part of season seven answer. Why is this story very, very infrequently spoken about, like reverently, like we have today? <sighs> It's just, it doesn't get talked about enough mm. for whatever reason. Oh, I think I think Spearhead gets talked about a lot because it is John Pertwee's first story and it's magnificent. Obviously, the Silurians gets talked about a lot because we then have the Sea Devils and then we have um, you know, Warriors of the Deep after that. And then we have um, the sort of like Cold Earth... Um, Madame Vastra stuff in the new series. So we talk a lot about the Silurians. We talk a lot about Inferno because it is very a, a totally unique episode. That all it was until we did parallel worlds um, with the Age of the Cybermen. Um, it doesn't have a hook, does it? I think that's the big problem. Is <laughs> Altons? Uh, they were here all along, parallel universe. They're big yeah. hooks. Whereas, like we've been into space before, yeah. you know. We, we've made contact with other species before we've done action with unit before so this is kind of doing stuff we've we've done before but it's doing it extremely bloody well it does but it, it does have that hook as well because we'll have the ambassadors and if you look back with again at like um promotional material around that time you know if again you go back to sort of like the 10th anniversary there's lots of shots of you know perk we fight and sea devils and ambassadors the ambassadors you know keep popping up i think obviously they've not been brought back in unlike and the Silurians or the Autons the, or the Master who comes along in series season eight. And then, you know, we get a lot of that. Is it is it because, you know, it wasn't around in its current form for quite a while, that it was just like black and white and no one had access to it um, enough to talk about it? Is it just a received fan wisdom? I haven't checked what, you know, the third Doctor Handbook or, um, you know, those 
those only guides that we had at that time have said about this um you know is it uh, it was sort of i seem to remember they both sort of got like five out of ten yeah like, so it's sort of middle of the road yeah right, and well then let's turn the tables let's i mean we've already done that for three and a half hours <laughs> but let's condense it all down into should we do seven reasons how many should we do we should do seven reasons we've talked okay. about seven episodes so <laughs> seven well you reasons. go first and then you get five Go on. Oh, right, I am going to say um, for one of my reasons is going to be the relationship between the Doctor and Brigadier Alistair Gordon Methbridge Stewart, mm. which is just absolutely phenomenal in this. It's it's the sort of thing I wish we'd seen a lot more of, just that whole Holmes and Watson thing that you talked about. Um, the mutual respect between the two and the affection is just absolutely wonderful. Um, so that is my first pick uh my so my first pick is going to be the fact that it gives uh liz shaw a chance to go off her own and drive her own subplot uh and have some action and those scenes with lennox and it just uses her in a very sophisticated way and i think it spotlights i think she gives her best performance in inferno because she gets to do yeah these really interesting things but as liz shaw in our universe i think this is probably her best story yeah um next thing and then i'm going to pick is the direction from michael Ferguson because you know not it's like you say not a shot's wasted he comes up with so many um interesting ways of you know directing um you know shots that could just be very static and very uninteresting or made a lot more dynamic and a lot more um exciting just because he is putting a lot more effort into it um you know without michael ferguson this this could well again fall in very flat well i am gonna say and now it's your turn to say god damn it the score by dudley with uh, simpson <laughs> which is which is one of his best i think no it's not um, you don't think it's one of his best no i think it is his best oh city death nope who is mars Nope, this, is his best. this is his best you, you get three I mean, essentially as well as sort of the incidental thing you have those three killer themes you have sort of the the ambassador's theme of <laughs> which is just so <laughs> creepy i mean that that scene where he's coming up the stairs to get get lennox just that lumbering yeah. again slow moving unstoppable you know the music is giving them everything they that. need. Yeah, it's fantastic. Then you have the so action theme for you. Very jolly. Then you have the dun 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 Okay, fine. It's it's Daddy Simpson's best score against some pretty hot competition. There is hot competition, but you know, this again, this just stands out for me because it is, it's not just one brilliant bit of music. There is at least three. And then he's, he's little, even his little Hamlet theme when when they're doing the 2001 Hamlet oh, episode. Yeah, one. yeah, yeah, yeah. It's all, all right. Wonderful. What's your third one? Oh, right then. Um, I'm going to pick the, the writing by Seven Sticks and Mac Hulk because to to be put in this situation where you've got the bare bones of a story um which has been worked at and worked at and worked at and worked at and to then have to kind of you know 
take all that out, put your back against the wall and say, we need to deliver seven scripts of a story that is going to, you know, fill um, all this time and to do it so bloody well, to come up with such an actually twisty plot that is exciting and doesn't let up and again leaves it at the end of seven episodes going well okay so that was very long and there was a lot of padding in there but what would i cut out not a thing to be able to pad so so well and um, with just extra bits of dialogue and extra little scenes and extra character moments um it's it really speaks to the genius that was them terran sticks and mackle working together uh, uh i'm going to have as my last one then I think this is the most convincing and authentic uh, space control that Doctor Who has ever pulled off. They tried it in 10th Planet, they tried it in Android Invasion, and I always feel like it's, it's a tiny set with a few extras in there. This feels vast and big and yep. busy, full of people doing stuff all over the place, um, and like the location works in on it as well with all the pipes with uh, let going around it feels it just feels like a genuine working environment i don't think doctor who pulls that off very well yep. um but i i absolutely believe it here okay i'm going to pick so my next one is going to be the the hard sci-fi element of it if that's what you want to call it hard sci-fi the fact that it is you know it's a pure science fiction story you know it is you know, alien invasion, but it's not an alien invasion. It is, you know, rockets going into space, that sort of thing. But because it's played so realistically, you know, because it isn't just, I've got a rocket in my back garden and, oh, I'll, I've got a spare one, so we'll just nip into space. The fact that we have all of these um, key um, scenes where it's like we're talking about the the fuel, the G-force, um, all of that stuff that just brings a level of realism. I know Jason Thompson's probably sitting there you know, with a pen and paper, ready to tell us exactly what. <laughs> Please feel free to, because it sounds convincing enough, though. Doesn't it, it is, it is, and it really works because it's it is really thought about. And even if they have got it wrong, they've thought about it enough to have a stab at getting it wrong. Um, so yeah, the the whole sci-fi element of it works for me. I think that um, well, no, that's our seven there, isn't it? I think that Chris Probably Carter. Okay, well, my last thing then is uh, Chris Carter sitting there <coughs> in America watching his little TV show, uh, Doctor Who, taking notes of, of ambassadors of death, of government conspiracies and, and aliens coming along and all of this. And then a few years later goes, oh, I'll tell you what, we're going to create a show called The X-Files and we're going yeah. to grab all the paranoia that's so expertly uh, conjured up in ambassadors of death and we're going to inject that into a 90s TV show once Doctor Who's off the air. And then they'll never know that we stubble it from them. It's very X Filesy. This, yes. very X Filesy, and it's successful for the same reasons that, that the X Files was. Yeah, successful. and it, it's very new series as well because you, you have that really sort of like sudden ending of kind of like, well, everything's wrapped up, so let's off we go, you know. And um, well, I'm going to keep going because I really don't know how many beans make five. Sorry, everyone that's asked that. Um, so my next thing is going to be Regan. Oh, because we oh, have taught a lot about Regan yeah. and Regan should be taught a lot about more. This whole story should be taught a lot more. But Regan just being that absolute perfect villain of having everything, you know, in one package, the the smarts, the style, the sinisterness, the viciousness, um, the technical capability, 
Uh, oh, he's just, he's just wonderful. Well, then my next one is going to be, and I don't think um, I can stress enough how much he is underrated as an actor. John Pertwee, in his third Doctor Who story, delivering a fucking powerhouse performance in this. And yeah. he gets every single set. He gets the comedy bits right. He gets the action right. He gets the thoughtful moments right. There are no signs at all that he is new to this role. He's owning the show. He's amazingly good. Absolutely. I mean, you know, we're on episode seven now, but go back to episode one. Just look at that intensity when he's you know slapping his thigh thing i know what this means i can't think of it and right you know, he's, he's cut the, it open yeah he's got the full range he's got that authority about him that's the doctor but he's also got that dandiness that you said he's got that thoughtfulness at the end where he's he's thoughtful enough to say yes i know that you are wrong i understand exactly well, he says yes general i understand, I understand. but i'm gonna yeah. let you down gently because you know you are ruined enough as it is now you are literally popped deflated defeated your career's finished you are completely written off but i'm not going to rub that in i'm just going to let you down gently with a yes i understand that you are so. any more for any more final one then go on when chef cave kept the best till last oh. the the one thing that sets this story higher than any other story in the whole of almost 60 years now with doctor who liz shaw's hat <laughs> the single best thing about this, this that talk about fucking bit camp. Of, <laughs> <laughs> but it's brilliant it's brilliant it just, it just sits on a head like a capital in its own right you know um, <laughs> that's the big finished box set we need is the story of liz shaw's hat force four episodes if i see it three times i'm sure they'll make it so yeah <laughs> Liz Shaw's hat. Let's Friends, all go around. Make a gift of, I will make a gift of that hat to you. Do you know? <laughs> well, look, that just, I don't think, I don't think we could possibly praise Ambassadors of Death any more than we have, you know. I think I we've done think a superb job, if I say so myself. Um, Fraser, do you know where we're heading next, you and me? Uh, possibly. I know there is one, that, one story that you said that you wanted to record with me. What's that? The time of the Doctor. Oh, oh god yeah do you like that uh, it has its moments oh that's nice at least you said that normally with Moffat who you're all over it well I mean there's there is some chaff don't get us wrong there's there's some wheat in there oh, but there's a lot of chaff as well so. Jesus Christ tying up three years worth of bloody plots in one extended dialogue scene halfway through the story that's got nothing to do with it sorry that's just start of ten <laughs> <laughs> But it just leads me to say, it's a pleasure as ever to talk with you. It really is. And I look forward to uh, holding your hand and heading to Trends Law very soon. Thank you very much. Thank you, everyone, for listening.